Welcome back, everybody, to the 19th edition of Running Into the Fog. Derek Johnson with Aurora WDC here with my brother, Eric. Eric, how are you? Hey, doing great. We have a really special guest with us today. And today, by the way, is August 5th, 2021. Like I said, we're recording episode 19. We expect it to go live around the 26th of October, uh, which uh, happens to coincide with a pretty special week for a few of us on the podcast today who are part of the Council of Competitive Intelligence Fellows. And our special guest today is Cliff Kelb. Cliff, thank you for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me, Derek. Eric, it's good to see both of you. Hey, Cliff. You too. We've had an opportunity to get to know one another. Um, you know, I'm sure some uh, you know, professional stories and maybe some sidebar stories will come out in today's uh, episode. Um, but, you know, I, in true fashion, keeping with the, the uh, theme and the name of this podcast, you know, we're all fog runners at times. And, you know, running through that fog can be scary. It can be uncertain. It can be, um, you know, a situation where we might encounter, you know, uh, things from our past again that uh, perhaps we uh, never thought might come up uh, in our future. And Cliff, I'd, I'd love to start out with uh, you sharing a story for our listeners that frankly, I think is quite stunning. And, uh, you know, it's truly authentic. It's stunning. It's in fact, unbelievable. Uh, but I know that it happened because I heard about it. Um, you apparently had a broken back, uh, in the year 2010 or so. And can you take us back to that moment and, uh, share a professional, um, success, uh, that ended up helping you out of that, uh, particular moment of fog. Can you share that story with our listeners? Sure. Uh, Derek, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. It's one of the most uh, interesting stories of my life, frankly. And uh, it, it takes me back to uh, a time when I, I was actually sick, seriously ill for the first time in my life and became a patient, which was something I had never actually had to face before. Uh, I broke the two lower lumbar in my spine. They cracked from an incident where I was uh, lifting something I shouldn't have done. I was immediately taken to the hospital. And this is in, at Harvard in Boston. And we had about uh, two to three weeks of attempted diagnosis to come up with what was my problem. Uh, there were two teams that were identified to try to narrow it down to what I had because it was a rare condition. And one was a, a infectious disease team. The other was an oncology team, a cancer team. Uh, at the end of those two weeks, I still had no diagnosis. They had run every test possible. And then one evening, a little bit after that, I was in this room in the hospital and a hand came through the, the uh, curtain that separated me from my neighbor in the hospital room. And the gentleman who put his hand through was an elderly man. He looked at me and he said, are you Calb? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I know what you have. And he said, you have a Proteus mirabilis osteomyelitis, of the lumbar number two and lumbar number three. It's a very rare condition. And uh, I've re researched the literature and I'm pretty sure that's your diagnosis. So I said, well, doctor, would you recommend 
two grams of ceftriaxone given through a pick line in my neck over the course of the next eight weeks to reduce the bacterial load down to zero to treat me. And he said, how did you know that? And I said, well, about 25 years ago when I was a marketing director at Hoffman LaRoche, which was the company that discovered and developed this antibiotic, uh, I was involved in shaping the label of this product to include that diagnosis, which was very rare. But I was inspired by Mickey Mantle, my, uh, who was a Yankee hero at the time, baseball hero, who had, the, he was one of uh, very few people who had a similar diagnosis. We were able to get this into the label. So the doctor started me on the treatment. I stayed in the hospital and each week they came and they measured how much bacteria were left and it started to decline 90, 80, 70, 60, 50. Eventually at the end of eight weeks, we were down to 20%, 20% left. He came back and he said, well, you're not completely cured yet. So we're gonna to have to keep you on it for another two weeks. So I looked at him and I said, well, doctor, you can't do that. And he said, what do you mean I can't do that? I said, well, I came from the drug industry, which is an industry which requires proof of everything. You have to have data to support the use of this drug or you're using it off label. And I wouldn't, you encourage, I wouldn't encourage you to do that because there's no clinical trial supporting its use. So he said, well, I'm gonna give you two choices. Uh, choice number one is that I can keep you on it for another two weeks and we'll see if it'll work and we'll get down to zero and I'll take the responsibility for using it off label. Choice number two is you can die. And given those choices, I said, well, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> <laughs> what have I got to lose? <laughs> two weeks later, he, he was right. It went down to zero. Uh, I then had to go through six months worth of rehabilitation. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to do all sorts of things again. And he asked me, he came back and he asked me, he says, is it okay if I write up your case and I send it into a prominent medical journal? And I said, well, as long as you don't use my name, that's fine. So he says, well, what I'm going to do, I just want to show you the headline that I want to use. And the headline was Proteus morabilis osteomyelitis of lumbar number two and number three comes of age, becomes an adult. Because I was the 21st case in the history of medicine that he had found in the literature. He had found 20 cases going back 75 years in the literature. And it was remarkable because the drug saved my life and I was the guy that was involved in putting it into the market so much earlier. Uh, to close it out, he suggested to me, why don't you contact the company? And I was no longer working. I was actually working for a competitor of theirs at the time and tell them the story. They might be interested. So I called a friend of mine who was a head of public relations there. And I told him the story and he was very excited. He said it was great because it could carry the message to the employees through an in-house newsletter that this is the real reason that you work here. The reason you work in a drug company is for patients. It's not all about making money. It's not all about ultimately coming up with the best dosage form or the most competitive marketing plan or the most developed R&D program. 
It's about helping people to either uh, return from a, an illness or to prevent them from getting one. And that was the headline that they put in the internal uh, in-house magazine, which was circulated to all the employees uh, regarding how one of their employees 25 years later used the product that saved his life. And I happen to be that person. Hope you, hope you enjoyed hearing that because just to, to recount the story gives me chills. It's a remarkable story. And it's one that, uh, I don't know, I think our listeners are going to take a lot of, I know, find a lot of uh, nuggets in, maybe uh, motivation for their own, uh, you know, personal uh, health and well-being in a sense. But that, so that was what, uh, 11 or so years ago you experienced yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't be here telling you about this, uh, this whole pharmaceutical industry and uh, my, my travels through it if it wasn't for this medicine, which saved my life. Oh, well, that's, that's awesome, Cliff. And I really uh, appreciate you sharing the story. You know, I remember when that happened. Um, I had been a fellow for a couple of years at that point, And I think you had just led the CI fellows prior to that, if I'm not mistaken. And then maybe Joe Goldberg stepped in after behind you um, to sort of chair the, the fellows. And I remember meeting in Chicago, I think, and hearing the story about that. And I was—I noticed that you looked very thin, uh, and that you said you were lucky to be alive. And um, I remember when that period of your life happened. It was shortly after that, actually, that you interviewed me um, for your series on the fellows. Mm -hmm. And how many of those are you up to now? And and I want to ask if that's—has that been published now? And I, I forgive me for having kind of lost track of it but I know you had plans to publish it. You were um, sort of wrapping up the last batch and then a whole new crop of fellows showed up the next year, of course, and you had to get them into it. And I don't know if you've done Derek yet, but anyway, where, where's that project stand, your fellows? Oh, I, have, I have done Derek. You have, okay. Derek, you recall being interviewed, correct? I do, yep. Uh, yeah, it's not finished yet. I have done 50 uh, of them. Uh, interestingly enough, there are about four um, and I, I probably should mention, for those that don't know, is that I, I was very careful the, the sequence in which I did them, because some of the fellows were getting up in years, and I thought it would be important to capture the wisdom from them uh, based on their, their age. So uh, I began with those over 80, and then I moved to those over 70 and then over 60. And then that's why it took me so long to get to you, Derek, and you, Eric, because you were near the, the lower end of the age spectrum. Um, they're still in plans for publication. I'm working with, a, with two different publishers who have two different approaches to how they want to do it. And I haven't decided which one I'm going to go with yet. But the basic idea is to take what is collectively approximately 1500 years of collective CI experience of this group and capture it in a way which uh, gets at some questions which are the basics of how they got into CI, why they did it, what was their background and how they moved into their careers through CI. And then the last part, there was a second section or everyone was asked the same questions. So I could then compare and contrast responses. 
And that was mostly about the present of the profession and also the future of the profession. And uh, this has enabled me to do some diagnostic work across interviews and come up with some conclusions that will be part of the book, will be beyond what the actual text of the interviews uh, are. So I'm looking forward to it. You, you and the other fellows will be the first to hear about it when it's ready to break, but we're not quite there yet. It's cool. You know, I, I think back to when I was a young pup in the competitive intelligence business. You probably remember me darkening your door at Merck uh, before I knew anything about anything and trying to convince you to hire Aurora WDC to help you out with stuff. And, um, you know, the whole fake it till you make it thing uh, works in a lot of places, but pharma is one of those where it doesn't. And over the years, um, I think of you and people like Pat Bryant and Martha Mateo and Wayne Rosencrantz and now Craig McHenry is a fellow. I think of that whole biopharmaceutical mafia, you know, with all due respect, um, I, it's probably the wrong word for it, but I think of you all as really the, the height of the profession in a lot of ways, the height of um, not only sophistication, but um, value production. I think that's where I'm going with that is, there's no other industry, and I, I now call it biopharmaceutical rather than pharma uh, per se, because of the influence of biologics. Uh, and I think the um, there's no other sector that has created more value from competitive intelligence than biopharma. Uh, thoughts on that? Well, it has a long history. Uh, I, I guess it, it pays to give you a little background on how I I came to be a CI leader in, at Merck. Uh, prior to working for Merck, I had worked for uh, both Pfizer and, and Roche, which are also these leading companies in the industry. But the previous jobs were not producers of intelligence, they were consumers of intelligence. I was a line manager. I was launching drugs. I was profit and loss accountable for them. I had budgets in the millions. I had products in the billions in terms of deal-making and selling and buying. And uh, basically nothing happened in the brands that I managed without my signature. I was the ultimate decision maker. So I made hundreds of decisions a day. I took advice from a lot of people, but in both of those companies, there was no CI function. It didn't exist then. It was before Skip was even formed actually. Hmm. And when I showed up at Merck, they said to me, we want you to come in as director of business intelligence. I said, well, I don't know how to do that because I don't have a corresponding function that I can reference from where I came. And they said, well, did you ever give anybody advice? And I said, well, not much. I usually took advice from others and then I acted on it. They said, well, you're going to switch to the other side, except probably the decisions that you'll be supporting will be a bit larger bigger investments, longer term, more strategic. And you'll be dealing with people on a global basis where at Roche and Pfizer, I was dealing with domestic units in the United States. So I began to learn the international side of the business and that's what made it exciting because every day it was different. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you probably both know Rainer McKaylee. Oh, yeah. Rainer is also a fellow and uh, I did a presentation one time at the Washington chapter of Skip, and somebody asked me the question, um, 
what makes you passionate about being in the CI field? And my response was, every day when I walked into my job and the phone would ring, the next adventure would begin. Hmm. And that's what really made it special for me because I never did the same thing twice, ever, ever, ever. I learned from every one of them and I continue to learn even today. I consider myself a student of the pharmaceutical industry mm. and it's been my passion my whole life. So it's, it's an exciting field to work in because I, I don't think you can be in a field where the ultimate output of your work is health. I don't think there's anything more important than health mm -hmm. uh, for human beings and for animals, by the way. Uh, so at the end of the day, the people you mentioned, one name that uh, came to mind that you didn't mention is a very close friend of mine is Mark Little also. Oh, yeah. Member of the group. He and I are probably best friends. We are very close. And I would certainly recommend him for a candidate if you haven't done him for this series. He's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I also think I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> Absolutely. I think he would be a great interview. Uh, I also think that um, the impact of the CI group seemed in the pharma industry to be uh, better, I guess, because of access that we had. And luckily, because a number of us, particularly the people you mentioned, did not come into the CI role without having had other functional roles in the industry before, like, mm -hmm. like me. I served in a role where I could learn how, how my clients were making decisions because I was one of them. Mm -hmm. So I had kind of walked a mile in my client's shoes. So when, I, when a client would call me, a potential client would call me and say, gee, I need you to do this and this and this, I knew what to ask him. I knew how to structure the design. So it gets back to kind of Jane, Jan Herring's kit process. You know, narrowing, narrowing the focus so that you make sure you're focusing on what can actually move the needle. And when it can move the needle, and you can, and you can do that in a way where you can uh, work with a team, which, which we always did. We always worked with people in other departments. I tried my best always to include someone from the finance function, always, as part of the team. Because the way that senior management in these large companies generally think about numbers is the way finance looks at them, not the way marketing looks at them or R&D or production or anyone else. So I would ask these finance people at the beginning of an assignment when they came on the team, do you think this project will lead to an endpoint which will allow us to measure the ROI and measure the ROI in numbers structured in a way that the senior management is used to seeing them. And they'd either say yes or no. And when it was yes, which was rare, I'd keep them on the team through the whole process. And when we got to the end, they'd say, okay, now the numbers go to you, run the numbers and put that part into our final report. And at peak, at least at Merck, I can tell you that the most impactful product that we produced in one case was one where the savings to the company was over $400 million. Wow. And that it took about two years start to finish to do the whole project. 
but we could anticipate that we'd be able to measure it before we started. Hmm. And that was the key element in making that impact. So what was done after that was each time we came across a new client internally, we would use that case history or other case histories to convince them that they should work with us so that we could save them the kind of savings or produce additional revenue, which was probably the way that the value made it to the top floor. It was always financial, um, except in the case where my life was saved. You know, that was a little different. There was no, you couldn't put a dollar value on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, interesting. So going back to your uh, project uh, with the CI fellows and doing those interviews, you, you mentioned mm -hmm. getting started with people that might be a little, little wiser uh, in number of years, right? And similar to that, we might be doing something like that too, Eric, with this podcast, just perhaps not quite as intentionally as Cliff is going about with his project. But Cliff, you know that uh, it was a few weeks ago, I reached out to the gentleman you just named, Jan Herring, uh, who is known in our space as being one of the one of the uh, legacy inventors of the kit process, the key intelligence topics process. And I said, Jan, you want to be on the, the podcast? He said, well, I'm too busy right now. I'm dealing with some health issues, both my wife and, and myself. Um, if you want to talk about kits, you need to get Cliff Kalb on the, on the phone. So I'm not exactly that doc at the hospital. Are you Kalb <laughs> reaching through from the, the this uh, curtain? You know, but, that is, I was, I was very flattered to hear that. I, I didn't expect that Jan would do something like that. I don't know if Jan told you, but he and I taught together at the Academy of Competitive Intelligence for over 10 years, actually. Mm. Uh, one night when I did a program, it was, it was after the full day of listening to Ben Gilad. So it was kind of a hard act to follow. So I had to use my sense of humor to be able to keep the crowd awake. Okay. Uh, the following day, which was a full day with Jan, uh, when he was first, uh, I was acting, sort of acting as an understudy to him. And I watched him several times give these programs and he had very specific way of delivering the information. And then he said, okay, it's your turn to try and you get up and do it. And he sat in the back room and he watched me and when it was over, he said, well, you know, you have a problem, Cal. I said, what's that? He said, you, you talk too much. <laughs> he says, you have to listen more. You have to ask questions more. And uh, then he went over every single slide and showed me that I had spent two and a half minutes on this slide and three and a half minutes on that slide. And then he told me, this one has to be cut down to a minute and a half, this one to two minutes, and you have to fill the whole thing out in less than an hour. And ultimately, after nine or ten tries, I got there. But you know, I still have a tendency to talk too much. <laughs> you uh, you shared you shared uh, Cliff and lead up to this podcast a, a paper that you've written. Uh, perhaps it's written in a way that's unique to the pharmaceutical industry. But in scanning it myself, I, I find correlation to almost any vertical uh, industry subsector, et cetera. And I, I'd love to spend a little bit of time on that. And I, I'm going to start from the in the reverse order of the issues, because in, in our world right now, your issue number five is improving our company and industry's societal reputation. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'd love to start there and then jump in, Eric. But, you know, the, how can 
the the process of kits and key intelligence questions underneath them help to you know uh, unravel the uh, key business issues that we look at and i think that reputational concerns uh, need to be uh, amongst the highest of them and you know drug companies get uh, at times a, a bad reputation for being all about profit and uh, price um, you know uh, gouging i'm going to use that word even though that's not really what i mean but can you talk a little bit about that in the context of your paper sure this is a this is a tough one um, let me start with some information that um, underlies this question the there's a survey done once a year of major companies around the world where they are force ranked from top to bottom in terms of their not the companies but the industries uh, from the perspective of the everyday man a consumer that is not trained in any of these industries but interacts with them uh, historically the pharmaceutical industry has been either last second to last or third to last almost every year uh, we were competing for that position with the oil industry and with the tobacco industry uh, sometimes if we move it up to third to last that was considered a great achievement uh, what can be done is to try to explain in a public way through, for instance, an, orga an, organ an industry organization, not from an individual company, but from something like pharma, which is the industry organization of the research-based companies, what is the process that actually goes on inside of a drug company to discover, develop, and market a product? And how much does it cost? And how likely is it that you will be successful? It is an incredibly high-risk business. Uh, of every 10,000 molecules that go into initial trials, and this is long before you get into humans, this is in laboratory tests, one will ultimately make it all the way through phase one, phase two, phase three trials, application, approval by regulatory authority, and then marketing successfully for profit, which is the goal of the company. That means all of the others, the 999,999 that fail, have to be paid for because you're still doing the research, but you're stopping it at a point where something occurs which you would never want to take to the next step, like it kills a rabbit or it kills a dog or before you ever put it in man. And once you put it in man, that's when you run the risk of side effects that may occur that are not predictable. So that story has to be told and it's best if it's told by an industry group rather than one company. The interesting thing that's happened is the case history of just the last 18 months on this question. Uh, you may recall, I don't know if you participated in the fellows meeting, which was right around the time of when COVID began. And I was part participating in that. And I guess I was the only pharma person on the call at the time. So they said, Trump has announced this thing called Project Warp Speed. And he says, we're gonna have a vaccine in before the end of the year, 2020. What do you think of that? And with my knowledge of the vaccine business, my response was, I think it's a fantasy. 
Snowball's chance. I said, I think the, the shortest one I've ever seen has been four to five years. And the longest one I've ever seen has been 27 years in development before it was actually approved for use. And this was kind of a cognitive bias at the time. I wasn't aware of it as a bias because I had nothing to compare it to. But when I said that to the group, I really believed that it was not going to happen. Well, you fast forward, what, 11 months, and now we've got the Pfizer vaccine and the uh, Moderna vaccine getting emergency use authorization in less than, less than a year. And I go back to the, uh, the fellows group meeting and somebody says, well, you said it was a fantasy. And I said, this is one time when I am so happy to be wrong. Because sometimes you predict things on the basis of what you have seen in the past, carry it forward to the future. And because of new technology, this mRNA technology that you've heard about, which has never been tried before, ever, to produce a vaccine, many, many steps in vaccine development are completely eliminated. Which means the future of vaccine development is going to now follow the mRNA pattern, and the old technology will be dropped. So the, the ultimate result of all of this is that this year, when they did the survey of industries, all of a sudden, pharma was at the top. Huh. Didn't climb just up to the bottom quarter. The, it was at the top. Really? Because the word had gotten out that this investment, which turned into a miracle, from the perspective of the history of drug development resulted in the saving of millions of lives, millions of lives, and it's still doing that. Um, interestingly enough, during the course of this time, I was still active in a consulting project with a, a vaccine development company, which still doesn't have their product on the market and will likely wind up introducing it only in India, okay, because of what has happened in other parts of the world. But I can tell you that um, those are the kinds of actions where when technology speaks, and frankly, I have to be honest about this, when you went to get your shot, you didn't reach into your pocket for your credit card either, okay? You didn't go to the counter for a bottle of 10 antibiotics in a little tiny vial and a bill for $100 and say to the pharmacist, what is this, gold in a jar, okay? At the end of the day, it's the portion of the healthcare system which is visible to patients in terms of them interacting with the people that actually dispense the product. When you deal with doctors, you don't ask them how much they're gonna charge before you actually are treated. When you deal with hospitals, you don't see the bill until you leave. Those account for 90% of healthcare bills. The pharmaceutical industry accounts for 10%. Uh, but it's very visible. Uh, but the vaccine thing is important because it doesn't have anything to do with treatment. It only has to do with prevention. And for those that think that the theme of prevention is brand new, work in the pharmaceutical industry in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, when the polio vaccine was developed, when the, the uh, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, whooping cough, those are all eradicated. They're all viral diseases. You don't hear anybody 
that actually has those diseases today. They're completely wiped out. But the inspiration for that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt who had polio. He helped fund the development of the polio vaccine and that led to the industry picking it up. So it was a government private partnership then and now, interestingly enough, that led to the change in the perception of the industry. Hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. It's a long, long, long answer. It absolutely does. What do you think, Eric? Well, I was going to say, I don't, I don't think vaccines have traditionally been a big profit center for pharma, have they? They haven't been a large moneymaker. It all depends, Eric, on whether or not there are multiple producers of the same vaccine. Hmm. So if you have three or four different companies like, uh, let's say, Glaxo and Sanofi and Merck and uh, probably Pfizer, Novartis, those companies are all in the game. Uh, then they compete. And usually in uh, mostly outside the United States, you have what's known as national health insurance systems. So you're doing tender bids. You're, you're bidding with the government. They ask you to, they tell you how many units that they want you to produce and you submit a sealed bid. The lowest bid wins. If it turns out that you have, and that usually lasts for a year, then you get to do it again. If you are the solo player in the game, then you can price it where you like until the second one comes. But my experience as a marketer, which I did before I got into CI, is it's really the third player that wrecks the game. Hmm. The, the two players that initially come in, like Moderna and Pfizer, were able to keep prices a little bit higher and what you'll see in this case will be when the emergency use authorization changes to a full approval, which may be as soon as next week or the week after, that will be a signal to the drug companies to raise the prices. Hmm. So it will be, uh, it will drop to the bottom line. Huh. When you get to five or six players in the game, then, then it becomes more of a commodity. Right. Should we go next to Issue number four in that paper, achieving global operational uh, efficiencies. How, do, how does that come into play? Mm -hmm. This is one which relates a lot to what has happened in the industry over the course of the last, let's say, oh, 30 or 40 years. And something I've tracked uh, routinely as part of my job. And that is that the industry has gone through extensive consolidation. Uh, I can remember probably back to uh, a time when Pfizer was just Pfizer and now uh, Upjohn and uh, uh, Warner Lambert and Park Davis and other names that used to exist as separate companies have all been swallowed and all part of Pfizer now. Uh, same is true of Merck, same is true of Novartis. Uh, so there's, there's a tendency for the large companies in the industry to seek R&D support outside their own in-house R&D group, and they'll go to smaller companies, sometimes biotech companies or what's known as specialty companies. In the industry, that means you only work in one therapeutic area, like you're an oncology company or you're a dermatology company or you're an arthritis company. And you can acquire a company and make it a department in a, large, in a larger institution. Those transitions from uh, one company units to two company units 
lead to tremendous need for downsizing or laying people off. It's not a good time for the players inside the industry. Um, I've experienced it in several cases. Most of the colleagues that you referred to have lived through it. And the idea basically is to make the production area, which is probably the most important one for being able to provide supply efficient uh, and eliminate factories that aren't necessary. That's going on right now uh, in the case of Pfizer. They just eliminated a production facility last week. Hmm. Um, and jobs are lost when that occurs. Uh, so that's the first concern. The second thing is that there's always an out, there's always an attempt by the executives in the industry to outsource functions that cost more when you do it in-house. The single most expensive part of the game is research and development, without a question. It's just ex very expensive. So a whole another industry has developed called CROs. That stands for contract research organizations. They will take your drug substance, which has been a twink on the scientist's eye, and convert that into a drug that's studied in the early stages, the pharmacokinetics, the uh, all of the specifics that you can test in the lab and then begin in, into phase one trials, phase three, two, three, two to three trials, and then actually prepare with your help the application that goes in for review and approval. And part of the job for a CI person here is to do uh, strong overviews of the portfolios of these companies, what their experience has been and their capabilities in terms of doing ethical research and doing it in a way which would meet the standards that you would do if you did it yourself in-house and then making recommendations on who to partner with, okay? And that was something I did many, many times while I was in several different companies. So that's part of it. And then ultimately another aspect of this is uh, putting together marketing plans where the marketing plan involves people coming from two different firms. There are many partnerships where are not, well, they're not full mergers, but they're basically JVs, joint ventures. And the JV actually has people working on it from two different drug companies with two different cultures. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you know, culture eats strategy. Well, I've been on these committees and I've seen it from one side and I've seen it from the other side. And there's a lot of clashes. Uh, probably the best example I can give is a, just if you'll mind a quick story. Uh, when I was at Pfizer, it was apparent that the power in Pfizer is in marketing and sales. There's nobody better in the industry than them. Uh, when I went to Roche, the power there is in finance. Basically, they're a Swiss company. So basically they're a bank and act as a pharmaceutical company in disguise. Uh, then I went to Merck and the power there is an R&D. They're a science company. So I often tell the story of the product manager who walks into a room and the decision has to be made on a dosage form for a new product. And what he's looking for is a suppository. You know what a suppository is and where it's generally placed. Okay. Yep. Um, now, if you walked into a room at Pfizer and you were the marketing guy, the minute you walked in, all the science guys around the table would 
immediately there would be a hush that came over the crowd. And the marketing guy would say, well, I want uh, two shapes and three sizes. Well, we can do 14 shapes and 20 sizes. Do you need that? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I could probably market that differently in Greece than I would do in Finland, okay? And so the decisions would be made pretty much based on what the marketing guy said. Now you take that same product manager and you move him into the Roche meeting. He walks in and he says, I want two suppositories and three sizes. And the finance guy goes, how much does that cost? How much will it cost for the small size, the big size, and the middle size? And he will say, well, you're not going to be able to do that, so you can only do two sizes. And that will be the decision, okay? Hilarious. And then you walk into the room at Merck, and you're the product manager, and you say two sizes, and you say, well, I really want a suppository. And Arndt will look at the marketing guy like he's crazy, and they'll say to him, that's ridiculous. We're going to make it in a transdermal patch. We don't really care what you say. Okay? <laughs> now, all of these companies are all top five global companies in the industry. They're all incredibly successful. They've all stayed at the top of the industry, and they've made it to the top in their own way. But the cultures are completely different. Hmm. And when you're inside them and you see how decisions are actually made, when you're sitting at the table with people from finance, people from the law department, people, the teams are uh, huge. Um, you can see that where the real power is. It's a power game. And mm. you have to be cognizant of that. And if you want to play it, you'll do fine. And if you don't, you'll go to another company where you fit better. Fascinating. That's a really cool way of describing it. Um, yeah. Getting to know what what type of organization and then blending your your product strategy toward it? Well, interestingly enough, um, another thing that I, I could kind of give you an example of, and I, I'm reluctant to say the specifics here, but I don't mind. I guess it's long enough for me after having left all of these companies to say it. I would also, I was also able, as I spent time in these companies, to kind of look at what I thought was the quality of talent inside the companies. And I would always rate that on a zero to 10 scale, where zero was an idiot and, and 10 was a genius, okay? And then I would compare myself to the average person, okay? So when I was at Pfizer, I, on that scale, I called myself an eight. I was pretty smart compared to most other Pfizer people. And then I moved to Roche and I became kind of about a five. Okay, I was much lower, but a lot more people that was a lot smarter than me. When I got to Merck, it was only a question of was I a two or a three? <laughs> um, and this is basically because the people in this company are so smart and so sharp and so invested in the passion that I mentioned before about patience focusing on patients every day. What did I do today when I came in? I don't care what my job was. I just want to do something that helps a patient, okay? And that's what the debates were about. I'd see debates going on in the cafeteria between scientists over whether or not a dosage form for zero to two-year-old for an asthma drug should be in the form of a 
something that they sucked up in a straw that was sweetened or something that was sprinkled on the top of a cupcake like sugar. And they screamed at each other over this issue. And that was normal. That was everyday thinking in this company, how important it was. And the market size for this was so tiny, it really didn't matter. But they wanted to be perfect. They just want to think about it from the patient's perspective. And that way of thinking was very much aligned with my way of thinking, the way I, I viewed the industry. I think the industry should be R&D based. And so of the three, I spent the longest time at Merck because this is a company that I respected the most. I want to get uh, that, that I think sets us up really well. Will this paper be available uh, for public consumption? It's at currently some point? available. It's currently available. So by the time this podcast goes live and later part like, of uh, October, would, we'll If they would like we'll to see the paper, um, if you go on to the fellow's website, okay. uh, there's a tab called publications. And if you go under my name, uh, you'll see it under that title. And the title of the paper is Pharmaceutical Industry Key Business Issues for Decision Support. Got it. We'll make sure uh, in all the podcast notes that we cross-link to, uh, to that paper and that website. Real quickly, uh, here as we seek to wrap up, issue number three, securing and maintaining market access. What do you have to say about that one? Oh, my goodness. How do you talk about that in 30 seconds? Uh, once you get the drug through development and you get it uh, into the market, you have to deal with payers people who decide yes or no, we're going to pay for this. The most complex market is the US because you have a public system and a private system. You have Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, cash payment, a variety of private programs, et cetera. Outside the US, it's actually simpler because you're dealing with national health insurance programs in most places. The distinction basically is that when you're selling these products outside the US, you first go to the uh, regulatory authority to get approval for safety and effectiveness, which is a standard everywhere in the world. But in, in these national health insurance companies, there's an additional step, which is you go to the pricing authority and you say to them, here is the evidence I have developed in the clinical trials that this product is not only safe and effective, but it's cost effective. We have shown how when you introduce it into a healthcare scenario and you're looking at the total cost of patient management, everything that's involved in management, how the, the introduction of a drug as a medical intervention reduces that cost. So the absolute cost of the drug is not what you should be looking at. It should be how does the system save money as a result of using drugs? That argument sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Depends on the country, depends on who's the head of that pricing authority and whether that changed last week. So I can tell you that it's the most frustrating part because often you're involved in bidding, you're involved in competitive bidding, you're involved in what is known as drug substitution. Are you familiar with the concept where a branded drug is substituted by a generic drug? Right. And that's done by law where you, if the drug is available generically, you cannot dispense the branded drug to save money for the system. As a matter of fact, one of, one of the facts I think you should know is that 85% of the US market is treated with generic drugs. 15% of it is treated with branded drugs. 
On the revenue side, 80% of the sales is in branded drugs and 20% is in generic drugs. Because the minute the patent goes off on a drug, when it's over at the end, they call, call it LOE, loss of exclusivity, there's usually a, a, a feeding frenzy among generic companies to wind the price down. Probably in less than six months, if the original price was a dollar, it'll be 10 cents. So uh, that's why constant innovation is required in the industry to replace the drugs that are going off patent with those that are coming into the pipeline at the beginning of a product life cycle. Makes that one in 10,000 molecules calculation even more interesting, right? Right, absolutely. So it sets you up for issue two. I, I don't know, I, I went in reverse order and I actually think it's turning out pretty cool. Uh, issue number two, maintaining value throughout the product life cycle. Exactly what, what you're talking about, right? Yeah, this is interesting because I wish I had a slide to show you, but the, the life cycle of a drug starts about 10 years before it's ever marketed because all of the R&D is going on after the patent is issued. So the patent clock it ticks and you're not, you don't have any income at all until you finally cross the break-even line and you start selling it. Then you have to have the uptake curve, the maintenance curve. Then you hit the point where the patent goes off and it drops like a rock, okay? So the idea is when you get to the point where you're going to move that line up, it should be basically vertical. You need to put a lot of emphasis into year one, year two, year three. There are models, countless models in the industry of how drugs in this category or that category or other categories have done in those first couple of years that are used to help people do forecasts, upside, downside kinds of analyses. But I think at the end of the day, the idea is to proliferate and keep what I would call innovation going on throughout the life cycle. And here I'm gonna give you one quick example. One of the products that Merck has right now in the market, which I believe will become the most successful drug in industry history by 2024, is called Keytruda. You may have, seen, may have seen the ads for it. It's a cancer drug that they had invented and got it on the market for one claim, one use, which was melanoma, which is skin cancer. Since then, they have continued to develop the product for 15 different uses by studying it in different types of cancer. Cancer is not one disease, it's 150 different diseases. So when you do the studies, once it's on the market, you're then submitting what they call supplemental applications. The government reviews those. And if they're approved, you can add them to your label, which means you can then have doctors write prescriptions for them. This what, what this has done for the industry as a model is basically said what used to be a launch that lasted for one to three years has become a launch for the entire life cycle. In other words, you're still launching a drug, you're finding new uses for it along the way. And your selection of the drugs in the R&D stage need to be drugs that you think will be able to work in a number of different uses. So it makes the decision even harder at the R&D stage because you can't predict that it's going to work in all of those until you actually do the trials. 
So the maintenance of, oh, and then the last stage, which is kind of interesting, is the post-LOE stage. How do, you, how do you maintain income once the patent goes off? And one of the tricks that's used in the industry, which happens all the time, is when you have a body of evidence that goes back for 20 years, it shows that it's safe and effective in a severe condition, let's say in GI disease in treatment of ulcers, okay? Could you use the same drug at a lower dose in the treatment of uh, upset stomach, okay? And bring it out as an over-the-counter product, but still continue using it with the same trademark, the same name, and either keep it yourself or license it to somebody else who's an over-the-counter expert. So a, a good example from Merck is Pepsid. You've heard of Pepsid? Pepsid was a prescription drug for GI disease. It went through that whole life cycle. Merck knew nothing about over-the-counter. They came to me in CI. Who should be our partner? I did a huge study, ultimately recommended Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble took the product over-the-counter. It's Pepsid over-the-counter has been a remarkable success in their hands, and all the originator company does is collect royalty checks. <laughs> so it's another way of extending the life cycle beyond when the patent goes off, which is done, which is, it's called dosage form proliferation. <laughs> you can come out with other dosage forms, creams, ointments, and they will be, if they're not big sellers, they won't be ones that generics will copy. The generic com companies will only copy the largest selling dosage form. Yeah. That's a double-edged sword too, because I've, as I recall, that's how OxyContin got on the market was uh, oxycodone was repackaged into a buffered long-term dissemination delivery system. And they didn't think ahead to people trading on the black market and snorting the stuff, you know, in volume. So. Well, that's, that's a, that's a sad story. It's actually uh, become a, uh, very serious um, legal case, mm -hmm. uh, and the company is out of business yep. uh, that, that, that was involved in that. But I can tell you that um, other companies that have done this and managed it in a, in a professional way are actually running life cycles for drugs that run 30 or 40 years now, mm -hmm. even though the patent may last 17 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. So the, the fifth and final uh topic, key issue, uh, rate is number one in your paper, obviously, Cliff, is replenishing that drug pipeline. Yeah, this one, I'll, I'll try to be quick because I know we're near the end. Um, I'll tell you about a study I did, and this was at the request of senior management. They were very interested in learning about first five years of a product's life and last five years of a product's life and how to invest in those two stages relative to uh, maximizing or optimizing the area under the curve, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I did a study across uh, the, I don't know, top 20 companies in the industry and looked at that. And the conclusion at the end was that in order to maintain a market share of revenue that was growing at the, at the front end of the life cycle, which is the first five years after marketing approval, if you compared that to the last five years when they were going out, you had to sell at least twice as much in those first five years that you were going to sell in the last five years. 
I also found that if you had any drug in your portfolio that accounted for more than 30% of total portfolio sales, you were in huge trouble. Because when that patent was lost, the chance of having another one come along that would replace it at 30% was almost impossible. You'd replace it with three or four products that were seven or eight uh, units each. So at the end of the day, the, the planning was all based around the issue of making sure that the R&D cycle of the, of the product was carefully managed in a stage gating process. When you got to the end of phase one, huge meetings. You'd walk, I'd walk into these meetings, there'd be 50 people in the room, half of whom were all wearing white coats, all scientists working from the bench. And I'd get up there and I'd say, you know, this is how much we have to sell. And they'd say, well, we don't care. We just worry about what's gonna happen in the lab. I said, well, that's fine. But if you don't sell it, you won't have a job. I won't have a job and we need to have jobs, okay? Yeah. So at, at the end of the day, the, the marketing R&D interface inside the drug company is probably the single most important one to work. It has to work. Uh, over the course of my time in the industry, I hired, uh, mentored, managed, promoted uh, about 450 people. Wow. And um, over the course of that time, once they left my function and moved on to other functions, some stayed at the company where we were, some went to other companies. And today, looking back at it, there's at least 10 people that work for me. They're now CEOs of okay. other drug companies who were uh, subordinates of mine. So when people say to me, well, gee, what was your greatest accomplishment? I, I said, I, I didn't do anything. I basically, all I did was help people develop their careers so they could do better than I ever did. That's mm -hmm. my most important accomplishment. And uh, okay. the way I look at working with the fellows and working with Skip and other organizations, it's important to pass the torch. And uh, you can see that I've done that in several cases in my professional organization responsibilities as well. So just an observation and Derek, thanks for leading that conversation with Cliff. Um, you have demonstrated in the last 50 minutes or so, 55 minutes that we've been talking, uh, the three kind of key characteristics, um, the first of which, it, and this is for a successful intelligence analyst, the first of which is curiosity. And that sort of is sort of table stakes. You've got to be curious about how things work, how things get done, what invisible systems are in operation that we can't see. Um, but the second, and you just talked about it, is humility. And humility is the ability not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself a little less uh, and to think about what is happening with not only your client, but your team, the you know mission that you're all working collectively towards. And then ultimately the legacy that gets left behind when you're gone, you know, what, what, uh, what mark will you have made on those people that you've encountered? And the third one, and the one that I think is the hardest for us today in this modern age of narcissism, Cliff, and this is the highest praise you'll get from me, is empathy. Uh, the ability to imagine what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes and to treat them as they would want to be treated. Uh, and so, you know, with that, my man, uh, what a delight this has been to spend an hour with my kid brother and, and one of the captains of this uh, field that we love so much of competitive intelligence. Uh, and somebody that I hope everyone looks up and, and reaches out to, and at the very least, 
uh, finds this paper that you wrote, look for Clifford Kalb on the cifellows.com uh, website, and then be watching for the book on the, uh, the fellows interview series, whenever and wherever that comes out, just set up your, your Google alerts now. And uh, I'm sure it'll be notified when it does hit. Where else can people follow you, Cliff, or connect with you? LinkedIn, I'm guessing? Uh, LinkedIn is fine, or the uh, website, or my uh, uh, address, which is ckalb55205. You're not going to believe this, at aol.com. Oh, yeah. That's, that's OG, <laughs> my man. That's really... That's perfect. That basically dates me a bit. <laughs> You're an AOL original gangster. That's and right. uh, actually, I think at one point in this podcast, I heard my brother accuse you of being part of the mafia. So we'll no, the pharma, the biopharma mafia. Okay. From, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be cute. Well, That's a good just, thing. Uh, let me just say thank you to both of you. I, I've enjoyed participating in this. Uh, I, I Usually, I'm ready for uh, just about anything when it comes to these interviews. and. The way you handled the five major uh, areas, going from five to number one, was not what I expected, but it worked. I, be, I think better than doing it the other way. So counting down uh, the hits. You're a real, you're a real, you're a real innovator. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it sure has been fun to jam on this stuff with you. You know, we we covered a lot of ground. I'm just going to close by saying, you know, back in 2010, when your doctor gave you both those options, yeah, you, know, you can either die or you can. You know, continue to take this drug beyond the eight weeks that uh, you know the uh, clinical trial had approved. I'm glad you made the choice that you did. <laughs> you made the right choice, Cliff. You made the right choice, Cliff, and I'm glad that you've uh, you've gone on to to recover really well and to, to have such a lasting um, and continued uh, impression and you know just the valuable work that you. I, I know that you continue to do uh, not only for intelligence analysts out there in the community, but the the biopharma space business leadership world um, this world is a better place because of you and we appreciate you uh, running through the fog with us uh, Johnson Brothers from Wisconsin here this afternoon thank you very much thank you again thanks again Eric and Derek and uh, it's been a pleasure thanks Cliff we'll see you all next time on running into the fog with the Johnson Brothers and uh, number 20 is coming up next and if you're watching this on the 26th of October when it comes out be sure to be there for the Council of CI Fellows Conference, which is starting tomorrow after this comes out. So uh, thanks, everybody. Talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Cliff. Bye.